I'm not going to harm anybody and there's nothing wrong with me. And if there was, I'm all better now. I'd like to come back inside. Now you got my promise. We'll see. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, man. I want to come back inside. Don't you understand? I'm all right. I'm much better and I won't harm anybody. You gotta let me come back inside. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Colro Lane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 60 this time and we are back to Erica's Coloween selection for 2017. So what do you have for us? I picked The Thing from 1982, directed by John Carpenter, with Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Mazur, and Donald Moffat. A research facility in Antarctica comes across an alien force who is bent on assimilation, infiltration, and the apocalypse. Now, this version of The Thing is loosely based on John W. Campbell Jr.'s novella, Who Goes There?, which was even more loosely adapted by Howard Hawks and Christian Nyby as the 1951 film The Thing from Another World, which we covered way back in our episode number nine. First time we've done original and remake so far, I think. I think you're right, unless there's been a remake of Desperately Seeking Susan that I missed. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I've read that novella, Who Goes There? I enjoyed it very, very much. And I did mention this is a loose adaptation, but it's not too, too loose. It retains a lot of the same elements. I think it is, like you said, less loose than the 1951 version in that the main element of the creature assimilating features from human beings and moving from host to host like that That was nowhere to be found in the 1951 version. And this film, like the story, has no female characters and includes some of the same elements like the hot needle test on the blood. Now, I didn't realize that John Carpenter considers the thing to be the first part of his Apocalypse trilogy, Mm, which also includes Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. Prince of Darkness that I really enjoy, In the Mouth of Madness, eh, not nearly as much as the other two, probably. I'm with you on Prince of Darkness. I like that very much, but I actually haven't seen In the Mouth of Madness. Mm, Good, not great. Fun, but it doesn't stack up to these two, I don't think. They all center around that potentially apocalyptic scenario about whatever this thing is, or this being, or this force, should it ever reach civilization, it's only a matter of time before it consumes everything on Earth. Now this iteration, we start right away with this flying saucer in space, which I think like you, I always forget. Every time I watch it, I am taken by surprise by this opening credit sequence in which we see this UFO crash into the earth. I always somehow forget that that's how it starts. And you would think that I would remember because this UFO crashing along with them exhuming this body from the ice are the only two direct nods to the original. I always think that I should remember it because it's so visually different than the rest of the film, and it seems so at odds. This version shares that same super cool burning font. 
to reveal the title, which is one of my favorite parts of the original. Now here, we are in Antarctica, and it is winter 1982. For me, it gets rolling so quickly with that iconic music. Bum, bum. Essentially, Anio Morricone providing what has to be the most expensive John Carpenter imitation soundtrack ever recorded. Not to discount it, I really enjoy the music, but it seems like if that's all you wanted was a Carpenter clone, you could have gotten somebody for half the money. And there are other moments and different scenes where I refer to it as his more traditional music, but dang, I wish he would have just kept with the bum bum the whole time. And I think that that's a huge highlight of other John Carpenter films is that sort of electronic tense score. Now here we start with this helicopter hunt of this dog. And there's a shooter who can't quite get the dog who he is clearly aiming at. The dog seems pretty wily already. Is there anything more sympathetic than a dog in danger? You could have a baby dangling over an alligator pit and I would not be as invested as I am in this dog. Fun fact, that was an alternative scene. (laughs) They land close to the U.S. research station. Now, meanwhile, we start to see inside this facility, and we have Kurt Russell as MacReady. There's the game room where some people are playing different things, but MacReady is alone and drinking and playing computer chess, which is the only female even voice in the film, is the voice of the chess played by Adrian Barbeau. If you can't pick up the late night signal from KAB Antonio Bay, then the least you can do is give me her for the computer chess program. Now McCready loses to the game and gets pretty pissed off. This is what I think of as a stock John Carpenter device, and it's one that I cannot stand. For a very simple reason. He is smarter than these jokes that he uses for this sort of thing. Because what does this chess scene tell you about this character? That he's a hothead or a rebel or is inconsiderate of machinery? I don't think that is significant enough to have to try to communicate, so I think it is technically, quote, comic relief, unquote. And he uses this stuff all the time. And there's a good reason for it. It has to do with him being a canny showman and knowing his audience. But I can't stand it, because I know for a fact that as a human being, John Carpenter is smarter than that joke. If he goes to someone else's film, and he sees that level of humor on screen, he is not going to laugh. He may make a note to himself and think, oh, I can do something like that. But it doesn't entertain him, I don't think. But he's well aware of the fact that a large portion of his audience is 13-year-old boys, or those people with the mentality of 13-year-old boys. So you see this come up again and again and again. Every one of his films has a moment like this in it, and it drives me insane. It has always really bothered me as well, mostly because I think you cannot be so stupid as to think that piece of equipment will not come in handy at some point later on, (laughs) and you don't have the parts to fix it there. But we now come up against my biggest pet peeve. McCready goes outside. It's Antarctica. I'll just remind everybody again. (laughs) He has no face cover, no ear cover, no gloves. He just shows you that he's a reckless devil-may-care type, though. He's a goddamn moron. (laughs) It is physically, and I'm sorry, I could start my separate podcast on it. It is physically impossible for that to have taken place. You cannot survive like that for any length of time. I lived in Alaska. I know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'll set that aside for the moment. Now, the other folks in the station also start to come outside when they hear the noise of the copter. The part that scares me immediately, only because I know what's going to happen later, is to see the dog rush up to one of the men and jump on him. One of the men comes out of the copter. We know later that this is one of the Norwegians from the Norwegian research station, and he is trying to 
to tell everyone something that they cannot understand. Now, if only even one of them had spoken Norwegian, the film would be over, because he is actually saying, get the hell out of there. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. <laughs> now, it only goes downhill from there, because the Norwegian is still trying to get to the dog, but the men are in the way, and there ends up being a gunfight, and the Norwegian is killed. Richard Mazur, who plays Clark is so gentle with the dog, and he basically takes him back inside the station. Can I just say right here that this thing is full of a lot of my favorite 80s guys? I love T.K. Carter so much, and Richard Mazur so much, and Wilford Brimley so much, and especially Keith David. When I watch this these days, I often find myself thinking half the time, I wish he was the hero. I almost stuck my arm out and put it in front of you as you mentioned Keith David so I could say, wait, 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 Keith David, I could, okay, my second, my second, second podcast is going to be all about Keith David. I have posted two forums and Facebook pages swooning comments about Keith David, <laughs> hoping that he would read them just a couple of months ago. So, okay, huge Keith David fan and wonderful to see him in other John Carpenter films as well. So He's personality plus that dude. Oh my gosh, he's the best. I will tell you, though, another person in the running for that role was Ernie Hudson. That's close, but I like Keith David better. Yeah. Guess how old Keith David was when this was filmed? 32. 25. Wow. How does that happen? So we're back inside the station, and everyone is trying to figure out why in the world this thing happened. Did he go crazy? Is it the whole first week of winter and everybody's just gone buggy? What is the reason for this? So the decision is made to go to the station and see if they can figure anything out, as the dog waits under the table, watching. Mac is the helicopter pilot for the station. He's going to take Doc out to the station, and he puts on his hat, which I always think of that kind of hat as... Calvary style? Do you know what I mean? From the old movies? Somewhere between that and a sombrero. This is the second thing that drives me crazy about this film. And I guess I should say we're trashing it an awful lot, or certain aspects of it an awful lot to begin with. I really enjoy it, and you love it too. Yeah. But there are certain things about this in the setup, when it's getting going, that irritate me. The moment I mentioned with the computer... And this whole thing of giving everyone a personality quirk that is easily identifiable so you can tell which of these bearded guys is this. And I get where it comes from. It comes from John Ford and all of those people that John Carpenter admires that made those westerns and war films where you have a barracks full of guys and you need to quickly sort out who's who is. Oh, that's Brooklyn. He's from Brooklyn. That sort of thing. So I understand why he does it. But the hat's a little much. The hat to me is like riding a unicycle. <laughs> <laughs> Also incredibly impractical. I'm with you, though. To me, it tips it in that tradition. And also, just because you wear sunglasses or a particular shirt, that's not really a character sheet, you know? That's not really a filled-out character, which is one of the criticisms leveled against the film at the time, and still. I can see using it in a film where you've got a bunch of non-discriminate cannon fodder, but you've got accomplished actors with distinct personalities, so it just seems unnecessary and lazy in this case. But once you get past the beginning, I think they dispense with that. We're going to get into actual useful bits of characterization, and you see, oh, that wasn't necessary at all. It makes me think of a couple of things. One, going back to the novella, which is the same sort of feeling. In the story, I couldn't necessarily distinguish 
copper from Fuchs. But then I think about the theme that starts to develop of, I know I'm human. And so far, we don't really know anything about these guys. What is that innately human part of them? And therefore, what this thing wants to absorb. But for now, as the station is going a little bit more quiet, we see the dog pushing through a door as the song Superstition by Stevie Wonder permeates through the building. And the dog goes into an open door. So when we see the silhouette that notices the dog coming in, we don't know who it is. I know who it is. Who is it? It's Kurt Russell's stunt double. Oh, okay. They used him, so that question would be left, I can't quite make out who that is, and that was for a very legitimate reason. It wasn't actually anyone whose face you saw. And the scene fades out, and I love the use of fade out in this film. Now, meanwhile... Doc and Recruity have arrived at the Norwegian station. What about Sleepy, Grumpy, and Dopey? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I kid, John Carpenter, I kid. I love John Carpenter. Well, interesting note, he didn't actually write this one. Right. That was Bill Lancaster, son of Burt Lancaster. The camp itself is billowing black smoke and is completely burnt out, but for me, it still can't diminish the blinding whiteness outside. And as Doc follows a deep blood trail, he is appropriately dressed, I would like to point out. I would hope a man of science would be. So as they're scouring the station, looking for the logs, again trying to determine why did this happen, they find that empty, holdout, gigantic block of ice that has been in storage. And outside, we see something, some burnt something. Is it a man? It's got curled distended limbs. Something seems impossible, not quite a human shape that we're familiar with. I love how they present these images when they're at the Norwegian camp. We get a glimpse of that frozen blood, which is such an incredibly great image. We see the edges of this thing. We can't quite make out specific details. It's just enough of a taste before two minutes from now when we get it on the autopsy table. They've brought this creature, whatever it is, back to this autopsy, as you mentioned, which Blair is performing. While the dog watches from the window. In addition to generating sympathy, is there any better delivery system than a cute pup? It is a good thing for me that Boston Terriers do not carry the plague, or I would be a walking dead man. As far as we know, yet. I wouldn't close the book on that one. I think Gibson is trying to slowly drive me insane, not make me physically ill. Gotcha. I will say that since we've gotten him, it's almost like having a three-year-old in daycare because I do feel like I've been sick constantly with weird, mysterious illnesses that can't quite be diagnosed and involve things coming out of me that I haven't seen before. Were any of those things made by Rick Baker or Stan Winston? I wish. So back to this autopsy, it seems like too much of something, not enough of something else. We see what I think are limbs, two heads that are essentially melded together but pulling apart while it has a normal set of organs, so we still don't know what's going on. I like to think of the face of the thing as John Carpenter's tribute to theater. It's comedy and tragedy all in one, is what it makes me think of. Both masks at the same time. Now it's nighttime, and a few different things are happening that I think are really interesting. One, we've got some characters watching old recordings of game shows that they have seen before. They know how it goes. While others are playing cards or pool, and... This reminds me that, whatever you may think, this is not day one of what I'll call an expedition, really. 
It's not even week one, quite possibly not even year one. So every experience has been experienced. Every conversation has been had. And for me, when you look at it in that view, having limited characterization at the beginning makes more sense to me. Because nobody needs to stay in there and give some sort of big exposition about their life. Right. I can see how you wouldn't need that to function that way in this story. But the majority of your observations about this stem directly from your experience in a place like this. And I'm guessing that you would probably tell me that stir-crazy does not necessarily need an accelerant of any kind. I lived in Alaska briefly. For me, it felt like an eternity. I went there because I was a dopey romantic and I'd watched too much Northern Exposure, and I thought it was going to be a land full of quirky, interesting people. So you did the opposite of desperately seeking Susan. Instead of going to the big city and getting your ass kicked, you moved into the wilderness and got your ass kicked. I did. I went to my first year of university there, met some great people, one friend whom I am friends with to this day, Michael Scharf. But it almost killed me, literally. And overall, I look back on that experience and think about the sorts of people that I met. And some of it's cliched. You think of the people going to Alaska so that they don't have to have long conversations about their lives or feelings. But I think in part, it is true. And I saw a lot of people there who, in my eyes, were escaping something, me included. I also wonder why I get so fixated on things like this, why I'm such a big fan of this, and why I read so much about the poles, and specifically stories of survival. I've always been fascinated for as long as I could remember. So why do I keep going back to something that I have such a negative experience with? Now that's partially rhetorical. I don't necessarily expect you to solve that riddle right okay, now. Okay, good, because I don't think I have the answer, because it seems like quite a bit of a contradiction. I'm a little surprised that after such a negative experience, it wouldn't put you off of this sort of stuff as entertainment just a little bit, not necessarily completely, but make it harder to process. But it doesn't seem like it's put up any significant roadblocks to your enjoyment of this sort of thing. I want to see lots of things with snow and people isolated and fighting things. Maybe I just expect at some point that they're going to blow up Alaska in one of these movies and I'll have my revenge. <laughs> but... Anyway, I can see people like this populating this kind of place. Now, it's in the middle of this calm evening that our first batshit crazy thing goes down. Okay, I'm curious what you might mean by that, since we've already seen someone who was stretched in half and melted and had teeth, hair, and organs inside and outside. There's more. Okay. Clark has been told to take this dog who's been wandering around the station all day, put him in the kennel with the other dogs. Can we talk about how well-trained these dogs are, too, by the way? I was really impressed when we went back and watched it recently. Even the dogs seem to have individual personalities in this thing. Now, if Gibson, our dog, were back there, you wouldn't <laughs> be able to tell him from the thing because he's always going crazy. I would be able to tell him from the thing because in the entire running time of the thing, I never saw the thing hump anyone. While maintaining eye contact with it? <laughs> yes, exactly. He's crazy. Our dog is crazy. Now, this dog in our film clearly does not want to go inside this kennel. And the other dogs who are down for the night start to watch it and start to sense it and begin to growl just a little bit as this dog starts to go crazy and then splits open. If these dogs had tin cups, they would be rattling them across the bars right now. One of them tries to, and succeeds partially, in eating through the chicken wire. 
of the door that they have up. What always strikes me is the noise that's coming out of the thing. I think of it like a cicada. If cicadas were full of lubed up noodles. Yeah, crazy tendrils that are shaking and erupting. The thing that always strikes me about the scene is when Clark comes back. Turn on a goddamn light when you're investigating creepy things that sound like this. But he doesn't. And the dogs are getting sprayed with something. And the dogs manage to get out of the kennel, knocking down Clark. And as he sees this creature, he tries to kick the door closed, but the thing has other plans. McCready sets off the alarm. Childs finally brings the flamethrower. And they burn that thing. The worst part for me is they have to shoot some of the dogs. But for the moment, this thing, this creature that we saw come out of this other thing, is burnt. Now, morning time brings us Alien Autopsy Part 2, where Blair has to break apart the creature to try to figure out how to get inside of it, to see what was inside, what hasn't fully taken shape yet. Isn't there some protocol when doing alien autopsies that you don't touch it with your pencil and then touch that eraser to your mouth? Yeah, that was the biggest part of the X-Files. It always drove us crazy. Just smell it. Yeah, then lick it. <laughs> Anyone who's taken science class knows waft. That's what you're supposed to do. Blair starts to surmise what is going on. How does this thing work? That it imitates other life forms, shapes its cells to imitate them. Going as far to calculate when the thing will completely take over the Earth. Running simulations, knowing that imminent doom is on the way. The apocalypse that you mentioned. That seems like a pretty common thing with alien fears, right? Assimilation. And I do mean alien in the broader sense. Like my Aunt Gail used to characterize the show Alienation, they're ten times as smart, ten times as fast, and they're foreign, so everybody hates them. Does she also refer to the weekly world news as just the news? <laughs> no, but she does live in Roswell, as we know. One of the things I really like to do with horror films is think about this larger fundamental fear, whatever it is that's being preyed upon by the filmmaker. And this assimilation thing you mentioned is exactly that in this case. It taps directly into that human arrogance of considering ourselves the apex predator, the very top of the food chain. Because it's not just infiltration, it's the obsolescence that then follows the infiltration that is the really scary thing to us. Because of that arrogance, we are no longer the center of the universe anymore. But we are absolute fools when it comes to this sort of thing. And I know we were poking fun at your aunt for this stuff. But I really do dread to think about what would happen if we encountered another civilization. How much that would throw us off. Even if it was completely benign, much less bent on our destruction. I think our reaction to something like that would expose us for being as dumb as I really think we are. We are at the top of the food chain now, but that is only because every other creature has an even smaller brain than we do. So ultimately, I guess it's right for us to be afraid, because I don't think we are constructed to handle this. To encounter this idea as a truth would so wreck everyone's fundamental ideas about their faith and our place in the universe that a lot of people simply wouldn't survive it. So it's a bit of a genius thing to condense all that fear down into an hour and a half running time into something so distilled and direct as this that you feel all those feelings without even necessarily consciously realizing what it is that Carpenter is poking at in you. It definitely gets to Blair, the person who has run these simulations and sees the implications of this. 
And he's the smartest. Right before that, though, I'm really interested in the moment, and this is represented by Fuchs, who is talking about the idea, like Dr. Carrington in the 1951 version, that we have to preserve these things, that we have to study these things rather than destroy them. So what does it say about me that I am fully on the side of destruction in this instance? I don't think that studying them is reasonable. So did his poking, did John Carpenter's poking evoke something in me? Or am I being reasonable? I would say both, because if you are like Blair and truly operating from a strictly coldly logical standpoint, the numbers do not lie. The odds are not in your favor. Good point. And we're about to get our first human casualty on this side. And it's George. Before everybody can get to Blair, they see that George, who was in the storeroom, is being encased by these tendrils. He's being absorbed. And now George, or the thing that was George, is staggering into the snow outside with a normal body, but what looked to be extra long fingers. And like the Body Snatchers version from the 70s with Donald Sutherland, he's not capable of human speech at this point. It's only a howl. And so they burn it. While they're doing this, and they have to burn everything, Mac sees somebody run from the copter with an axe and thinks that it's Blair. And yes, Blair has cracked up, or become quite sane, and is yelling that nobody gets in and out of here, and he is destroying everything, all their communications. He destroyed part of the helicopter, so it's now unusable. He got to their tractor. He killed the dogs. And he says, that thing wanted to be us. So we are now full throttle sowing the paranoia and distrust that is the hallmark of this and so many other films that come down to us from that Cold War tradition. We talked about how fantastic Keith David is in everything that he ever does. But I will say, Wilford Brimley is my favorite in this. He has my favorite line delivery with that I don't know who to trust line. But Keith David is still overall my favorite character. I'm with you. That is in my notes as my favorite moment when he says that. And I will point out he was your age when he made this. So is that why you married me? Because I have those Wilford Brimley good looks? Definitely. Youth and vigor? You do love oatmeal. That's no joke. You're goddamn right I do, buddy. USA. Blair seeds some more paranoia here. He tells Mac to watch Clark. Meanwhile, Doc has come up with a way to potentially test everyone's blood to see if he can figure out if anyone is infected at this point. This sets off some more fighting, and everyone's trying to arm themselves, protect themselves, fight each other. And Max says, I know I'm human, and we're going to find out who's who. Now, what do you think he means there? What does it mean to be human, especially in this place? We've talked about how individual characteristics haven't really come out yet. And I think that that's also because when you're in a place like this, when you're in this setting, you can't be too individual because you've got to cohabitate with everybody. Anyone with too much of a personality is bound to get on everybody's nerves. So if your individuality starts to be slowly stripped away so that this larger thing can function, what does it mean to be human? What is he feeling and trying to express? I'm not sure, because like you mentioned, it takes a very specific type of person to live at the end of the world. For instance, like you see in Werner Herzog's documentary, Encounters at the End of the World. 
I wouldn't say any of those people. Well, actually, now that I think about it, there may be some examples that are as extreme as this in their motivations, at least, for why they end up here. But I think ultimately what he's talking about is a collective, collaborative survival instinct. Does it go back to what you say, at least in part subconsciously, trying to remain the apex predator? Mm, Absolutely. When we all know that the apex predator is a tiger riding a shark. (laughs) But not in the Arctic. You obviously haven't seen Snow Shark. Is that going to be in your Ants in the Pants list for this year? No, I should have used that as my recommendation, though, now that I'm thinking about it. And maybe also because he is understanding what the stakes are. We've now seen some of the Norwegians' tapes where they went out onto the ice and they found this ship, much like in the 1951 version. So this thing is essentially beyond comprehension, but we have to start comprehending it. And there we arrive at another one of those things that gives me pause, that puts me off as a device in this type of movie. How long does it take for you to catch on to evidence that is right before your eyes? They treat it matter-of-factly in one case, as if they aren't that shocked by these transformations that they've seen and these things that they've had to burn alive. But once all the pieces are falling into place, isn't it more remarkable than they behave like it is? All sorts of things about the behaviors don't make sense here. Impatience with the analysis of it doesn't make sense. Trying to hurry the science part of it along. Trying to hurry the understanding in a way that leads to grievous errors. It makes me think of things like just happened with the hurricane in Houston and how all of a sudden there are gas lines in Austin. Is it any wonder that I think that we will ultimately lose this battle? I mean, all it has taken is one time or maybe two times of having to sit in the very front row of the movie for me to pester you to death to get to the theater by a certain time so I get the seats that I want. I mean, and that's empirical evidence. And so do you think that there are times when they're in too much of a hurry and then not enough of a hurry? It's all of the above. There is not a consistent plan. I don't know why an alien organism would want to infiltrate us if this kind of frailty and inability to process is our hallmark. Well, let's get back to that person who I think knows more of the answers, and that's Blair who has been put out in the shed so they can't hurt anybody, but they didn't think about him hurting himself. My next favorite moment of his, when they go to talk to him to try to see if he has seen Fuchs, who has now disappeared, he's made a noose, and it's just there. And then they find Fuchs, or at least his burned body. It looks like he may have done it to himself. Now, they're dividing up, because Max sees that the light is on in his shed, and he didn't leave it on, So they're going to go investigate. Meanwhile, Norris is having internal pain, but he's still speaking. He's yelling, which I think of again as watching those hallmarks of infection. First, we had George, who could no longer speak. But Norris is clearly in distress, but he's still verbal. So is he truly infected? Is it taking longer now? This is the most fascinating part for me to just sit and think about as theory when it comes to watching this. The whole time frame, post-infection, pre-transformation. This entity that is taking you over, it now has to juggle both its own drives and maintaining your outward appearance and your logic. It has to drive your human body around and keep fulfilling the tasks that look normal while it is somehow furthering its own agenda. It is maintaining these twin thought processes 
And I think about it so much, I guess to the point that if I ever saw this remade again, I would rather see it from the thing's perspective and see what exactly that is like from the inside. Well, it's obviously starting to get more and more important as their numbers dwindle, and you cannot rely anymore on the thing being obvious. And that comes into play when Knowles comes back and reveals that he has cut the toe line for Mac because he found one of Mac's torn-up shirts. So the thing is even good at red herrings. It is. So, yes, did the thing in his dual mind think, okay, I've now got to cast suspicion over here so that I won't be detected in the body that I'm in now and won't be destroyed too quickly? Or has Mac been infected? All the while, Norris is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And then he goes down and he's not breathing. And Doc is trying to perform CPR while he tries to put the paddles on Norris, his arms go through Norris, and then the thing snaps those arms off. Rob Botton and his genius practical effects team actually got a double amputee to do that. So that is legitimately someone with no arms below the elbow. They fitted him with prosthetic arms that got chomped off by those jaws, and he was also wearing a mask to simulate Richard Dysart's face. So what you are seeing there is literally a man with no arms. Practical is always better than CGI. They manage to burn the body, but they don't see Norris's head, which then sprouts those leg, crab, tentacle things. And as it's being burned, it emits that same death howl. And now again, they are surveying who is left and continuing to fight, so much so that Mac kills Clark when he tries to rush him. During this sequence, there is another one of those moments that is infuriating where... They whine about having to tie up the quote-unquote dead after just having seen a head crawling around like a spider. Like they haven't put two and two together that there's the potential for unlimited danger and we need to eliminate the margin for error. So I'm going to complain about having to do this right now. It's not like they ask you to drain the fryer or mop the floor. It's pretty crucial. The scheme is that everyone's blood is going to be drawn and they're going to use this hot needle test because Mac's theory is that the thing wants to protect itself, and that this blood will try to survive and will crawl away from this hot needle. The first time you saw this, did you guess who it was? No. Did you? Yeah. At least, I think I hoped who it was, and I was right in that regard. So, I, yeah, I think so. Guessing aside, I think it's done really, really well, because there are some visual tricks that are happening. Everyone, with the exception of the person who's also about to erupt, which is Palmer, has a key light. So there is light in their eyes as you go through each person. And back to Palmer, no light. Other person, light. Back to Palmer, no light. And he's watching and he's also not speaking. Again, I think about that period from infection to assimilation. And going through a nonverbal period seems to be a key part of this. And that tension gets ratcheted up as we test every person's blood. When we get to Palmer, Sure enough, it reacts. Something comes out of the dish, and the blood shoots across the room as Palmer starts to separate. And everyone is still tied to him, so they're trying to get away. Those arms go up and he hits the ceiling, and then gets windows by the head. And for me, it's like watching a bear shake a salmon. Is that directly from your Alaska experience? No. I guess just watching a lot of bear videos. Now, through all of this, they do get to Palmer, but they've opened up a wall in the station in the meantime. 
but they still check everybody else's blood. Everyone else is fine. Now they're going to go give the test to Blair. When they get out there, the door to the shed where they put him is open, and there's an opening in the floor, and they discover a tunnel. Not just a tunnel. A complex of tunnels where he's building a spaceship. Another part I tend to forget about. I don't know why I take out the whole space element of this, because we've seen the ship that was in the ice. We never saw what came out of the ice. It was just this crater inside of a block of ice. So it's not like the space alien that we see in the 1951 version. But I still just, I guess, whitewash through the whole space thing. Can you pinpoint a time in the film at which you realize there was a clue that this is not Blair anymore? Or do you think that solely happens off screen? I think that all goes back to this question of what is this gestation period? Because I really wonder if they had taken him out of the shed when they saw that noose, could they have saved him? Or was it already too late? It was already inside of him. It was already working its way through. He was still just maybe verbal longer than everybody else was. I think back to that moment where he actually touched his lip with a pencil. I go all the way back to that. And I think just because he was intellectually stronger than the rest, that's what let him go on longer. Which leads me back to that thing I was saying. In his case, it's even more of an interesting struggle between this thing that's occupying him and his human self. Does this thing recognize that he will be the most useful? Does it complicate matters because he will also be the one that's able to resist it the most? The internal struggle between Blair and the Thing is my favorite thing to think about in the whole movie. And as we mentioned, I think he certainly has the most interesting dialogue in those two different scenes in the shed. The first where he is trying to explain that you've got to get me out of here, weird things are happening, and also gives a warning, watch Clark. And then second, the scene that we did together, which is my favorite, where he's really trying to reason and be as calm as he can be. And by he, do you mean Blair or the thing? I don't know the answer. I guess it's the thing. I guess he, it, it, it had to have been, right? It's, he was just too far gone. I can't necessarily say exactly one way or the other, but I do like to think about the ambiguity of that because it mirrors the ambiguity of the ending as well. Those are the best parts of it, the things that Carpenter does not completely spell out. So while they're looking for Blair himself, as they've discovered what he has been building, one of my favorite visual moments that I didn't notice before this viewing, and I've seen it a number of times, it's when Knowles is looking outside the station into the darkness, and there is a blue light against him, and the face... He's covered in a full face mask and goggles. It looks like a skeleton. When I see any of these characters outside in the elements, they seem to me more like ghosts than skeletons. They seem to me more like phantoms almost. Well, the plan here, even though everyone is not together and they don't know where Childs is right now, is that they cannot let this thing freeze back again. Basically go back to sleep only to be woken up by somebody else. Because it could survive that way, but it can't survive being burnt. So they are going to blow the station apart. Knowing specifically, we're not getting out of here alive. Blair, in quotation marks, manages to get Gary and Knowles. And now it's just down to Mac. As that last Blair thing dog creature opens up, Mac manages to throw dynamite down into it. We watch the explosion from away from the facility, this giant fireball, and we're left with Mac wandering through it, semi-frozen, 
and then we see Childs. There's an explanation of sorts as to where Childs was during all of this, but not quite, again, that ambiguity. And they both acknowledge that neither of them is going to last long here, and even if one has a surprise for the other, they're not in much shape to do anything about it. And the last moments are of them together sharing this bottle. Let's wait here and see what happens. So are either of them infected? Both of them? Neither of them? Are you asking me what I think, or is that a rhetorical question? Both. Well, I have, I have an answer for you, but I'd like to know what you think. I think they're both fine, and I'd like to think that somehow they both survive. It's a bleak film for a long, long time, but somehow here at the end, I feel a note of hope is injected into it. I can't tell you exactly why. Is it some clever directorial thing like you mentioned about the key lights? Carpenter is a cunning filmmaker, and so I wouldn't put it past him to be doing something that is practically imperceptible to me that somehow still instills in me this feeling that, oh, these guys are going to be all right. Or it could just be that I like them both so much that that's just really what I want. I think that's where I fall, at least with Child's character. I don't really care about Mac that much, but I like them both as actors very much. I think, again, about that war film canon where you think, yeah, the two guys, they might be shot up, but they're still going to survive at the end. I will say, according to John Carpenter, and I think there's some debate about this. I know you have a point about this. He says that there was never a written ending where McCready got saved. That's strange, because from what I understand, there is a deleted scene, in fact, that is floating around out there that shows McCready in a hospital. So he was obviously found, having his blood tested, and it's all clear. I read that as well, and I think it was filmed maybe more for the studio as a potential test ending, and then not used, which I'm really glad for. Most definitely. I much prefer this, especially when I think of something like, for instance, Life that we went to see last year. And how explicit the ending was of that leaves nothing to the imagination. Nothing interesting is happening there. It's so uninteresting that I can't even remember particularly what it was about or what happened. I just didn't. It was terrible. I did not enjoy that. Now, Keith David was asked about the ending. If either of them, or if he knew, was anybody infected at the very end? And he said, well, I don't know about Kurt Russell, but it sure as hell wasn't me. <laughs> That is a very Keith David answer. Now, we picked on it in a few places. Did we go over well enough the things that you love about it, why you chose it? Are there things still to review in that regard? I think so, and I'd like to get there through a couple of different ways. Now, I did not see this when it came out. I was too young. I was seven years old. So I only saw this as an adult, and I mean I was well into my 20s before I saw it. I had no concept of the really pretty sweeping, tremendous backlash that the film received, and the vast amount of negative reviews. Very poor reception, poor box office. It was a dud when it came out. I don't think that was strictly based on its own merits. A lot of that had to do with the environment, with E.T. being so popular, and people wanting a specific type of alien. But funnily enough, as they were finishing the assembly of the film, a study came out that pointed out that in the last six months prior to the release of this film, the audience for horror films had decreased by 70%. So I came into it fresh and excited and scared out of my gourd, and it still scares me. It had achieved cult status probably by the time you got to it? Very much so. It was so well known I felt kind of embarrassed that it had taken me so long to get to it. 
So when I look back on the criticism leveled at it, a lot of those things are what I like most about it. So I'd like to get into some of those. First off, before we touch on any of the specifics, I do want to ask you, because I think you saw it when it came out. Mm -hmm. And of course, you've seen it many times subsequent to that. Do you think it's worth revisiting? Because we have talked about some things that we don't like about it. I very definitely think it's worth revisiting. I feel that way about just about everything John Carpenter's ever made with one or two probably more recent exceptions. Things this side of In the Mouth of Madness. Because of just that very thing that I mentioned, what a great filmmaker he is. That mix of showmanship, understanding his audience, and still sticking to his guns and making the story that he wants to make. He's very accomplished at threading that needle. And also, I think probably this plays into how much you like him as well. He is a big devotee of a lot of classic Hollywood-style filmmaking. You can see John Ford and Howard Hawks and Raoul Walsh and all these influences on what he does that he was able to make a little bit leaner and implement with a significantly smaller budget but still make really effective films out of it. So I would say probably at least 80% of his catalog I will go back to again and again and again. So for me, I didn't even know I was revisiting it. I was just coming to it for the first time and not aware of these perceived negative traits to it. So let's start to talk about a few of them. One is the effects, which to me are incredibly frightening and detailed and amazing and beautiful. You mentioned Rob Botton. He also had an uncredited assist by Stan Winston as well. Now, the effects were referred to, I think the most vivid description I read was Roger Ebert calling this a barf bag of a movie. (laughs) Obviously, he never saw Dr. Butcher MD. (laughs) Me either, thank God. It actually comes with a barf bag. The new DVD Blu-ray release of it comes equipped with a barf bag. Oh, jeez. Now, you know I'm not a fan of grotesquery, and I don't really think that these effects go too far, but many people did. Really? That's strange, because I can point out several examples of more human, less alien things that I think disturb you much more than this, whereas this seems like it would just push those buttons for you. It doesn't. It doesn't for some reason. Maybe if the alien at some point had eaten something on screen, I probably would have thrown up my hands and left. So as long as the alien's not making a sandwich, then we're good. Yeah. Or a close-up of its skin or something. Oh, whatever. I don't know. But many people did have a huge problem with these effects, and they said it goes way too far. Kenneth Toby from the 1951 version said, this is just too much. It separates anything good that's in the film. It separates the characters from the effects. All you see are the effects. Kurt Russell had a similar sentiment as well. He was concerned that with all the effects, you just could not get into the story and the characters anymore. Personally, I think that they do their job in spades. Just goes to show you that time will often be kinder to these things than you think. I want to go back again to the characterizations as well. I really come out at the end thinking that the screenwriter, Bill Lancaster, did an incredibly canny job of putting this together and telling us just what we needed to know when we needed to know it. And then, of course, it was cast beautifully. So you have the weight of someone like Keith David, that gravitas. You have Richard Mazur, who is such a great character actor. You watch his face and an expression can do a lot. And with that limited characterization, another criticism leveled at John Carpenter specifically, he said that he was called a pornographer of violence. 
And I think if you watch this film carefully, I think what's so beautiful about it is the suspense and the quiet dread and how much of this is not violent. So you put excellent pacing against that great score, John Carpenter, knockoff or not, and I think you have a great film. And I know ultimately John Carpenter was really stunned by the reaction to it because he had really gone into embrace the darkness, these dark moments. And he said, I made a really grueling, dark movie, but I thought audiences in 1982 wanted to see that. Tell that to Amblin Pictures. Yeah, they wanted to see E.T., also Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and Poltergeist and Blade Runner came out at the same time. But now, of course, I think it has been revisited by many, many people. I was a little surprised to see Roger Ebert had never done another review, as he has been known to do. He's revisited things. He didn't revisit this. I would be really interested to see, if he had had a chance, what he would have said about it. But you can't really top that barf bag comment. Although people tried. Yes. In the science fiction magazine Starlog, Alan Spencer wrote, John Carpenter's The Thing smells and smells pretty bad. (laughs) Well, maybe on set, yes. It has no pace, sloppy continuity, zero humor, bland characters on top of being totally devoid of either warmth or humanity. Zero humor. Did he not see that hilarious scene with the chess computer? Exactly. It would be written for people like him, right? What did he think he was going to see? The producers? Because John Carpenter is usually a laugh riot, right? Here's the uh, follow-up. Here's some things he'd be better suited to direct. Traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. To be fair, he'd probably do a pretty good public flogging. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said, It's too phony to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk. Well, Carpenter's had the last laugh on all of these guys. It's firmly in my rotating top three with Halloween and the fog, year in and year out. Same for me. I think that you are a bigger fan of the fog than I am. Yeah, it's probably third. It would be Halloween, fog, the thing for me. It's the top of those for me. It's my absolute favorite. So do you think I went into it enough? Is there anything that I missed that we routinely talk about? No, I think so. That covers it for me. That seems like perfectly legitimate reasons why that would be among your favorites of all time. So then, how about a recommendation? I'm going to keep us in the land of permafrost and go with A Cold Night's Death from 1973, directed by Gerald Friedman, starring Robert Culp, Eli Wallach, and Michael C. Gwynn. It was an ABC TV movie of the week about two scientists who suspect that someone other than their research primates are in the facility at their polar research station, while they try to solve the mystery of their predecessor's death. The real appeal of it for me is just that it's basically a two-hander between two of my favorite actors of all time, Eli Wallach and Robert Culp. But it does build a really great sense of this same isolation and dread. And for a TV movie from 1973, similar to Carpenter's work, in fact, probably even influencing Carpenter's work, There's a really great electronic music score to it. It's from back during that time when they actually used to make TV movies that were worth something. That they seemed to pour a lot of resources into. That were actual events for the weekly television viewing audience. You saw it with me. What did you think? Are there highlights I'm leaving out? I think this was a great discovery of yours. Is it something that you had remembered and then finally tracked down, or you came across it in doing other research? I came across it in doing other research. I will frequently scour these lists for these sorts of television movies because they are things that I really like. 
stuff that pops up in my head all the time. Somehow I missed this one, but I think it belongs in that same class of really memorable scares as Trilogy of Terror, The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. There are a number of these films that are really iconic for 70s horror fans, and I think this should go among them. I loved it as well, and I'm always asking for Find Me Something in the Woods or Find Me Something in the Snow, and you really delivered with that one. And watching Eli Wallach unravel is pretty cool. And what about you? What's your recommendation? Speaking of unraveling, speaking of isolation, I was really stumped for this recommendation. I felt like I had a couple of good options, but they maybe seemed a little too on the nose. You mean like people isolated at a polar research station who are being infiltrated by something? Yes. So instead, I was reminded of this film I saw several years ago and haven't seen again. And I don't know if you've seen it. I don't think we watched it together. And it is Moon from 2009. Oh, I've seen it. Directed by Duncan Jones with Sam Rockwell. And it is about an astronaut who begins to, again, unravel or see things or have this very odd encounter at the end of this three-year stint that he's been doing on the moon. And honestly, I haven't watched it again, but I just remember that I really liked it. And so this is as much about me wanting to revisit and maybe get other people talking about it as well. Well, I hope it didn't come across when I said that that I've seen it, that I didn't enjoy it. I really specifically liked it as well. I think Sam Rockwell, again, is one of those actors I would watch do just about anything. I know that his tics and mannerisms can be annoying to some people sometimes, but he does not strike me that way at all. I really like watching him work, especially solo like this. He's one of those that I know what you're talking about, and he rubs me all the right way. I really think that he's incredibly watchable and intelligent and really interesting, and I think a lot about my own isolation and what I imagine for myself and where I want to end up. And stories like that really appeal to me. So once again, that's two great recommendations, A Cold Night's Death and Moon. And that brings us to the end of episode 60. If you have yet to check out our Patreon, we would certainly appreciate it if you go look at that. You can find it at patreon.com slash magiclantern. We had great fun this month doing our spooky Patreon mini-episodes. There will be three of those in total, so if you like the Halloween treats, then you'll find extras over there if you donate at the $5 a month level or higher. Otherwise, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast, and I would just like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. John Laubinger from the podcast Film Baby Film, a really great show. Andy Wolverton. Allie and Adam at the podcast So That's How It Ends. Grindhouse Dave. Ross McLeod. Eric Parkinson at the podcast This Must Be The Place. Keith Rich. Tim Lego. Heinz Stuss. And a special thanks to Matt Gasteyer and Travis Trudell for having me on their podcast The Complete Podcast, which is devoted to Stanley Kubrick currently. And we recently had a really good time discussing The Killing. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. Just about any podcatcher you use, you can find us there. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>